There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Downstairs History. We had some great, great pods out recently. Kevin Fong talking about Apollo 13 is a classic. You've got to go and listen to that. Also, interesting pods over the weekend about about the house of byron that was a good one please go and check that out as well um this podcast is a look at 17th century shipbuilding i know how much you guys love that richard enza is the 17th century shipbuilding oracle and i wanted to ask him about what happened in this fun little island of britain why did the ships that were being produced here start to evolve how did it change why did was britain able to extend its reach, its maritime reach across the oceans and eventually into onto every continent. And the, the story starts in the 17th century. So enjoy this podcast. If you want to watch naval history, then the place to do it is historyhit.tv, my digital history channel. You can go, you can listen to all the back episodes of the podcast. You can go on there. You can listen, uh, watch hundreds of hours of documentary. If you use the code uh, POD1, P-O-D-1, you get a month for free and then you get the second month for just one pound, euro or dollar. So please go and check that out. In the meantime, enjoy Richard Enza. Richard, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure, Dan. It's um, good to talk to you again. Well, it, it is good because you are my mad aunt in the attic because I am a big fan of Georgian maritime history, Georgian sea power. And I like to say that the modern world was built um, from 1690 to 1815 by wooden ships, the Royal Navy. And every time I, I let that little voice tell me that there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the 17th century and actually the real action is probably there and it's worrying. So I'm going to open the attic. This metaphor doesn't work. I'm opening the attic and I'm addressing you now face to face. Tell me about the revolution that goes on in the period that, that you're writing about. I just love the 17th century Navy. I write books about them because they're so little known. Why is this period so important? It's where the Royal Navy really began to dominate the world. Up to the 17th century, we were just another naval power. But as you know, um, following the great 30 shipbuilding programme of 1677, we began to dominate the world seas right up until the end of the days of sail. So it, it's the ships, the way they developed and were built in the 17th century, that, that really take my interest, why they became so good and so powerful. What happened in England? What I find fascinating, what happened in England in the 17th century that, that transformed England and, and then when it became Britain in the early 18th into a, a globally hegemonic sea, sea power, given that the 17th century was a totally chaotic time in, in, in England and, and indeed in the Isles. We have a, we have a couple of civil wars. Um, we have a king. We have an experiment in, in republicanism. We have a catastrophic war of, of the kingdoms. Uh, we have... Uh, a, a one, another king deposed, um, an, another uh, illegitimate son of a king rising up and fighting a fight in a rebellion against his uncle. Like it's a it's a crazy century, and yet something's going on in the dockyards. How is that all happening? Well, I believe a lot of it is down to the king himself, as we all know, he was famous for his pleasures. We're talking Charles II here. 
Yeah, indeed. Uh, famous for his pleasures, and his number one pleasure, funnily enough, was the Royal Navy. Spent more time at Admiralty board meetings than any other member of the Admiralty. Um, he spent an awful lot of time there. He knew personally all the master shipwrights. He knew most of the people in the yards themselves, and he certainly selected all his officers. So he took an enormous interest in the Navy, uh, promoted it, and, and I think a lot of it comes from him. Plus the fact, of course, he established things like the Royal Society. It promoted technology, um, was always happy to engage and talk to people about it. And it's promotion of, of, of shipbuilding and shipwrights, as well as officers, that made us, I believe, a, a, a great naval power. Apart from taking an interest, what, what is he actually doing? Is the money coming in? Is it expertise? It's, it's not all just about battlefield bravery. Navies are something that take years or generations to embed. After the Third Dutch War, the Navy was in pretty poor state. And um, he, of course, had uh, Samuel Pepys, Secretary to the Admiralty, also a Member of Parliament, persuaded Parliament to vote for £600,000 to build this vast fleet of 30 new ships. And they were all incredibly well designed. The design of the 23rd rate um, would remain pretty unaltered for about the next 40 years. Um, and added to that were were nine second rates, three deckers, and on top of that, the great first rate Britannia. And it was this series of ships that really began to dominate the world stage. Um, they did, fought a defensive battle at Beachy Head in sixteen ninety two. Of course, they they defeated the French at Barfleur La Hoe, um, which up until Trafalgar was regarded as the greatest naval victory ever. Um, this £600,000 um, was, was a special tax that was put on um, and, pa- and which paid for those ships. Um, th- great difficulty collecting the money. This is before the Bank of England, as you well know. But nevertheless, this money was, was all found and paid for this great fleet of ships. And what about the, te- what about the technical spec? Are, are these ships different to what's being built elsewhere in the world? Has, has Britain got a secret technological edge at the moment? I don't think so, no. Um, French ships were equally good. It's just, um, I think we had a conservative, because we live, I suppose, in, uh, in northern climes, we had a rather conservative approach to the strength of our ships. And um, they did survive very well storms, and they survived a long time. They could be repaired, uh, didn't fall apart under the stress of the seas. So they were pretty well designed um, and pretty well respected amongst their crews and their opponents. I mean, what about the dockyards uh, that were able to build these ships? Are they they're, they're some of the most you know important places in English history now that that sadly no longer have the kind of maritime tradition. Well, that's right. Uh, j- just looking back at that time, um, I, I've I've just written a book um, called Master Shipwright Secrets, um, which is goes right into the heart of what what these shipwrights had to do to design their ships. It's often been thought that they, Peep says that some of these shipwrights design their ships by eye alone, and um, nobody really believed that, and uh, there's one or two treaties written. And while I was researching for a previous book, I was in the Bodleian Library in, in Oxford, as you know the place well, and going through Pepys's Rawlinson collection, and there I found, um, I found an interesting little treatise by uh, the master shipwright of Deptford Dockyard. And it's the dimensions of a ship. And it's a little treatise written specifically for Samuel Pepys. It's addressed to him. 
And the first few pages are just listeners of dimensions of a ship, the length of the gun deck, the height between the decks and the size of the gun ports, all the usual stuff. But then at the very back of this treatise was lists of column of figures and it's digital information describing the outside lines of a ship. Uh, pure digital. So they didn't rely on even just a draft. It's no good just scaling from that draft. You needed this digital information to build this ship to. And I thought, my goodness me, you know, how advanced is that? Because that's the very technique we use to build aircraft today, digital information. So I used that as a template to, to write a book about um, just exactly what the master shipwrights did to create these ships. So, so they weren't just, I've always thought that there was, there was an element of just looking at it by eye. And so you think they were measuring everything out and, and looking at performance and then making adjustments and, and building the next one better? Yeah, absolutely, they did. <clears throat> very, very technical. Now, you imagine you've got a draft of a ship um, in, in front of you, 148 scale, which has been drawn by a master ship, right? Now, people think that's what they built exactly the ship to. Now, you get out your scale rule and measure off, see how wide the ship's got to be on that piece of curve where that frame is. And, well, you're going to be inches out, aren't you, by the time you, you measure that and put it in the ship? So... They didn't rely on this. They relied on actual digital information calculated by a formula. For, they used a formula to create a curve, um, a geometric formula to create a curve. Could be a true art, maybe, but they used geometric calculations to, for the position of a frame on every piece of the curve. So they knew exactly where this frame should be when they built it and exactly the shape when they marked it out to, uh, to cut the frames. So, yeah, incredibly technical. And uh, it astounded me just how technical this was. This guy, John Shish, who wrote this treatise, he doesn't explain the formulas he used to actually create the curves. Anthony Dean, who also wrote a treatise for Peeps, he did, he had the formula, and he just used simple curves just, just to make the explanation simple. But Shish, you, he gave actual results of the calculations and the formula without actually saying what the formula were. Now, being incredibly lucky working in the aircraft industry, I was able to work back from his results to actually find the formulas he used. Did this by simply writing the loop, putting a test formula inside a loop, doing the calculations in an instant, and comparing the calculations created by the computer with Shish's figures, I was able to come up with exactly the formulas Shish used. I, wow, that was a eureka moment when I could discover this. And um, yeah, I, I based really, that's, a, that's the basis of this new book I've just written. did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions and more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets, The History of Sex Scandal in Society, wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful. Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, 
You can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And also remember, when you're using messaging apps, they shrink the photos. You cannot print those out. You cannot blow them up. This is high quality imagery going to one of the most important people in your life. The Aura app is super easy to set up. It takes about two minutes and you're going to love it. There's free unlimited storage. Add unlimited photos and videos and invite as many people as you want to a frame. Right now, Aura has got a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code DANSNOW at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So you've discovered the secret formula. Who were these shipwrights? Were they regarded as much as you might regard, you know, the, the radar and uh, specialist or the, or the um, code and cipher specialist in the Second World War? Were they, were they highly prized? Well, I don't think they really were. There's a famous incident where the members of the Royal Society, uh, with their expertise, and all the people who were in there, they were the famous mathematicians, and um, which we all know about, and um, they decided they would design the shape of the hull because they knew better. They knew about fluids and all things like that. They came up with a sh- with a with design of a ship. But um, it didn't sound very well. And the master shipwrights had the great pleasure of having to widen it and use their expertise to put the thing right. And Samuel Pepys said, these, these shipwrights, uh, it's more of an art form than a science form. But um, you needed an awful lot of understanding to know just how wide a, sh- a sailing ship should be to carry her weight of sails. The involvement of that, of course, is very scientific. It's worth remembering that in this period, there's still... Terrible mistakes getting made. I mean, the Vasa in Sweden in the 17th century just sails away from the key and capsizes immediately. So a lot was at stake. <laughs> yes, it was. Well, I think, I think the Vasa, um, she's got the same size guns on her gun deck as on the upper deck, um, 24 pounders. So she was rather top heavy. And um, English ships were not built like that. On the lower deck, the, the ship guns nearest the water, they would have vast heavy cannon. Um, ships like the London, for instance, or nearly all major warships, had guns weighing two and a half tons, the same size guns as are those on the Victory. And on the upper deck, the next deck above, they were much lighter. They were only between a ton and a ton and a half, and so on. We we were very careful in, in placing guns like that. Now, the other thing about the ships of the 17th century, this fleet of, of 23rd rates that Pepys and Charles had built, uh, they had 32-pounder guns on the gun deck, which is the same size as uh, as Nelson's Victory, and um, very, very powerful guns. But these ships were very small. It's the same size ship as the ship in Hartlepool, uh, the Trincomalee. Uh, that is a six-rate, carries tiny guns, but it was the same size overall dimensions as these ships built during the 17th century. So the 17th century ships, they were solely designed to carry huge weights of armament. And um, that's why sometimes they had to be girdled, made wider to carry their guns, because it never occurred to them that if the ships were, were, um, were not too stable because of all the guns they carried, they never thought to take any of the guns off. They just made the ship a little bit bigger one way or another. What other secrets? Because you mentioned other secrets that you've uncovered. Come on, tell me about the secrets of these ships. Apart from working out a formula that Shish or other master shipwrights used to design their ships, which, to be honest, can be a bit boring for most people, so I've kept a chapter on that very short. The other thing is mould-making. 
Now, you imagine when you've got the ship's plans and you want to actually carve them out on the, on the timbers, you need the moulds and uh, a very technical thing to be doing. And uh, there's no, I can't find anywhere where there's clear explanations of how these moulds are made. The, all the contemporary old books, they don't use drawings. And when you read a description of how a mould was made and all the technical words that go into it, it's absolutely it's numbing to try and read and understand it. But um, I spent considerable amount of time reading, spending countless hours trying to read and understand this stuff. But eventually, uh, with help of contemporary works, um, works from 1717 and slightly later works, eventually come up with the idea of just how these moulds are made. Now, I love drawing and stuff, and rather than try and describe them as previous authors have done, I've got a drawing of um, each stage of making these moulds, and it's so much clearer when you've got a drawing showing this stuff rather than just a, just a written explanation. Were these English ships effective in battle? Yeah, it's a, it's a number of things. As to start with, we need a powerful battle fleet, of course, to see off the first of all the Dutch and then the French. There's also tremendous developments made because um, we had a problem with uh, ships in the Mediterranean. A lot of our trade was being taken by Barbary Corsairs. And Charles II received the base at Tangier as part of his dowry when he got married. And um, he used this as a base to put Royal Navy ships to protect our trade ships from the Barbary pirates. Quite amusing, really, because first of all, he thought, oh, we'll do what all other nations do in the Mediterranean, and we'll purchase a proper galley with hundreds of galley slaves um, to, row, to row, because, of course, sometimes there's no wind. Uh, that was a disaster because the Royal Navy wasn't used to having uh, slaves, didn't know how to use them. Uh, the ship never went to sea, and... Uh, uh, Tangier was 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 faced with the prospect of a few hundred mixed Moors, uh, even Red Indian slaves, and some captured Greeks, people like that, who were supposed to be galley, galley slaves, but they never actually pulled an oar. Uh, caused lots of problems by burning wood and things like that. The Muslim Moors wouldn't eat the Royal Navy provisions of pork, insist on, on eating beef. So that was a disaster. The ship went rotten and never went to sea. Charles II then came up with the idea of galley frigates. This was very slim, lightly armed ships, no guns on the main deck, instead it had oars, and only guns on the upper deck. He produced two of those ships, the, uh, the Charles Galley and the James Galley. They proved very successful, but when they took a large uh, ship, I think it was um, an Algerian ship, they couldn't harm the men below decks. The, the crew of the ship fled below decks and couldn't be harmed. They had to take the ship by boarding a lot of casualties. So that was a bit of a disaster. So then Charles came up with the idea of building the Tiger, which was a ship uh, with oar ports between the gun ports. And um, it's a very amusing story on how King Charles developed and built this ship, the Tiger because um, she was one of the casualties of the, of the Third Dutch War. And um, when she came back to be repaired, uh, she was in such an appalling state, they couldn't really repair her. So eventually she fell apart. But Charles insisted on keeping the ship on the books. So this gave him an opportunity to keep a crew of warrant officers and their servants which he used as a benevolent fund for people he thought worthy, you know, injured old seamen, people like that. And also their servants or apprentices would be their carers. 
He went on like that for a few years. But with the Popish plot, Charles fell out with the Admiralty and did things entirely himself. He more or less run the Navy for himself. And he had out of the budget for repairs to rebuild a new ship called the Tiger. This was a whole new ship, which the Admiralty thought was just a repaired ship. And um, it was a great surprise to them when a totally new ship turned up. So Charles II used all sorts of devious means to circumvent all his own rules uh, to build the ship that he wanted. Richard, that was that was a, a tour de force. Thank you very much for, for um, allowing me to question you about the 17th century shipbuilding. Um, what are you're not just a writer, but you you're actually trying to get um, you're trying to get one day a 17th century ship reconstructed, which would be the best thing ever. Weren't it just? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, th- there's a huge development going on at the old historic Deptford Dockyard site, and uh, the locals down there, the locals themselves, want to build a replica ship. They're having a lot of problems because the developer isn't doing anything at all. And of course, before they start doing anything, um, it means the, the 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 people at Deptford can't start building their replica ship either. You know, I just give them all the support I can, and um, uh, when they do start to build their ship, um, it will be great fun. It will be being just a quarter of a mile, a short walk away from the Cutty Sark, seeing an actual ship built. Um, in exactly the 17th century style um, will be a great tourist attraction. It should be very successful. It'd be the best thing ever, Richard. Good luck. How can people find out about, well, tell them about your book and then also how they find out about that project. I've just finished this um, this book, just been published, uh, The Master Shipwright's Secrets. It contains lots of information concerning how they built ships in the 17th century, things that haven't been discussed before. Um, and it also relates to, uh, and it certainly is a great help to the people of Deptford who want to build a replica warship of the 17th century to commemorate the great Deptford dockyard that was originally founded by Henry VIII. And if people want to find out more about the Deptford dockyard project, where do they go? Yeah, if they go online and um, type in uh, build the Lennox, they will find this L-E-N-O-X. Build the Lennox, everybody. Words to live by. Thank you very much for joining us, Richard. Okay, Dan. Lovely talking to you. Hi, everyone. It's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying, and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it, and I hate myself. Please, please go on to iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically, boosts up the chart, which is good, and then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.